The interchange is brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technology, storage, and advanced control software. Stay with us because we have the third in our three-part series at the end of the show. We're talking to NextTracker CEO and industry veteran Dan Sugar about some important tech trends in solar power plant development. We're also brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Are you looking to advance your career? Are you looking for more skills and know-how on how to deploy clean energy? Well, Yale has an online program for this year that is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide and, of course, to mitigate climate change. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in our show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan, your host and a managing director at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Happy 2021. Couldn't be more glad to put last year behind us. Um, That said, I think 2020 was the year in which the idea of reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century became like totally mainstream. You saw like so many announcements that were proclaiming that they would reach that target last year. We saw it from corporations all over the world. I was just looking, Nippon Steel says that they're going to do it. In Japan, one of the biggest steel producers in the world, you see this from even the oil and gas majors. And like a lot of that happened in 2020. You see this from economies, right? All sorts of individual countries making those proclamations of their own. And you see this from um, you know trade associations for entire sectors. And like so much of that happened in the last 12 months. It just felt to me like there was a real sea change there. So I think what we'll end up doing on this show is spending a lot of our time this year working backward from that. So to start that year off strong, um, we have a really fantastic guest today, which is Jesse Jenkins. When we first started this podcast six or seven years ago, something like that, Jesse was, I think, either our first or second guest on the podcast. I don't remember exactly. Um, at that time, Jesse was a PhD student at MIT, and he was building out these really complex models to try to understand how to achieve a zero-carbon electricity system. Now, back at that point, at least my perception was that's what most of us who were paying attention to climate change and trying to solve it with technology and markets and business models were doing is is spending time in the power sector. Um, but here we are all these years later, and... I think Jesse's evolution as an academic and as a researcher reflects what's happened more broadly, certainly to me as well. Um, From his new perch, now having finished his PhD and uh, as an assistant professor at the Andlinger Center for Energy and Environment and the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Princeton, Jesse is basically working on the same concept, but broadened now looking at the entire economy and how to turn the entire economy to net zero rather than just the power sector. And that's certainly been my evolution as well. I spent the first decade of my career in this sector focused pretty much exclusively on power. And then the big transition for me has been taking a broader approach. And I think that's happening with a lot of people, particularly as these sectors start to interact with each other. You know, if we're going to electrify transportation, then all of a sudden a sector that was separate from power is part of power. 
And you see this in all sorts of different places. So Jesse's the right person to talk to, and it's the right time because Jesse and a a team of his colleagues at Princeton um, came out with just before the holidays. So if you missed it, um, now's the time to go back and check it out. A massive study called Net Zero America that lays out and then examines in extraordinary detail five different pathways for the U.S. to decarbonize the entire economy. I suspect whether or not they've actually read the report, most of our listeners on this show can guess some of the headline findings, if not the details. Yes, it involves building a lot more renewable power in pretty much every situation. Yes, it probably involves building a lot more transmission to move that power around. Yes, it means electrifying transportation and developing all the infrastructure to do so. Yes, it means there will be a need to develop things like carbon capture and carbon removal. But what I found particularly interesting is that when you look at the entire economy and all the different components of it and the needs to decarbonize the, relatively speaking, easy sectors like power versus the hard sectors like industrial and aviation and uh, cement and steel and and heating, um, there are some less obvious and accordingly for me anyway, more interesting conclusions. So that's where I wanted to spend the time focusing with Jesse. And um, I think it was a great conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jesse Jenkins. Jesse, welcome. It's good to be back on the interchange. Thanks. So it has been a while. And uh, actually, the first question I want to ask you is related to that. So back when you were first on the interchange years and years and years ago, um, when you were at MIT, you were doing all this research on decarbonization of the power sector specifically. Now, what's different about the work that I think we want to talk about for the most part today that you've been doing in your new world at Princeton is that it is broader um, and it is looking at decarbonization of the entire economy. So from the perspective of somebody who's trying to model and analyze that, like how, how much bigger of a challenge is it to figure out pathways to net zero economy as opposed to net zero power? Yeah, it's a lot bigger challenge. I mean, energy systems are complex and, you know, interact in ways, you know, where you change change an input or an assumption and it can have pretty um pretty surprising implications sometimes that are hard to predict without running a model like this. And so, you know, adding in, you know, going from just electricity to transportation and building heating and industrial processes uh, and fuels production uh, and, you know, CO2 transportation and storage and all of that, it adds a significant amount of additional uh, complexity and the interactions can be really interesting um, across all those sectors. And so it's, you know, if you're Climate change, you know, cares about all the CO two emissions, not just from one particular sector. And while the power sector is, you know, as I've long argued, a linchpin in reaching a net zero economy wide target, um, it is only a piece of the puzzle. And so, looking at how we're going to decarbonize fuels and, um, you know, and heating and buildings and uh, industrial processes like cement production, all that's critical as well if we want to reach a net zero emissions uh, economy, you know, for the United States or elsewhere. You mentioned how these different things interact with each other. I think that's one of the most interesting and important threads that we are all collectively pulling now where, you know, a lot of folks have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to decarbonize the power sector or how to, you know, electrify transportation, you know, these sort of specific components of decarbonization. Um, but obviously all these things are interlinked in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, is there a particular 
I guess, interaction between sectors that you find most interesting or perhaps most surprising, like wasn't super obvious on the outside? Yeah, let me let me give you one example, which I think is a pretty good, you know, it has several things wrapped up in it. Um, so in the Net Zero America study, we we looked at kind of two primary scenarios for demand, for end use demand for different fuels and, and electricity, uh, a very high electrification scenario we called E plus, which is basically, you know, full uh, electrification of vehicles, all electric buildings, um, you know, heat pumps in just about every climate except for the most, you know, the coldest regions uh, and an E minus case, which we um, which is sort of not a low electrification. It's a still a lot more than today, but um, basically modeled it as a, as a delay and uptake by about a decade. And since it's an S curve in adoption, you know, that's a pretty significant change. So instead of being at 99 percent, we're at like 50 percent or 60 percent adoption by 2050 for most technologies. Um, and so you would think that a lower electrification scenario would mean less demand for electricity and therefore less wind and solar constructed and less reliance on transmission. And what we found is actually that wasn't the case because in uh, at least in scenarios where we limited the amount of biomass that was available to make fuels um, or hydrogen or, or, or used for electricity generation um, to avoid large land use changes and sustainability impacts that could happen if we convert a lot of new land to bioenergy production, then we, we already use up all that biomass, even in the high electrification case. And so if we don't electrify vehicles... We have greater de- or buildings. We have greater demand for liquid fuels for transportation. We have greater demand for gas, you know, pipeline gas for heating homes, um, and we can't rely on bioenergy to do that because we've already used it all. So the only thing you can do is um, increase the use of electricity to produce hydrogen via electrolysis and to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere via direct air capture, both of which are very energy intensive processes that use a lot of electricity. So you're basically, you're taking CO2 out of the air, uh, you're taking hydrogen out of water, you're taking more electricity to put them together in some cases to make synthetic fuels, or you just use the, you know, use the uh, hydrogen directly or the, C- the CO2 as an offset for fossil use. Uh, and in all that, those cases, what it leads to is higher electricity consumption in the lower electrification case. Which I, you know, it's a nice counterintuitive result that I think illustrates why it's important to look at all these interactions and all the constraints across different sectors. That's fascinating. We're, we're going to come back to the bio bioeconomy and biofuel stuff, and probably to synthetic fuels as well. I know some folks probably know about synthetic fuels. Some folks probably never heard of them. Um, but I mean, first of all, that's a fascinating outcome that the low electrification case causes more electricity demand, though, like I can see how you get there. It's interesting how you put those constraints in different sectors. So you say like, well, we didn't electrify transportation, but we have to decarbonize transportation. So what are our other options? Guess we got to make synthetic fuels. Guess we got to use a lot of electricity to do that. Um, So that's, that's a perfect example of how these sectors are intertwined and why it's really complicated to like figure out what's going to win out in any of these scenarios. Yeah. And, you know, and after the fact, you I can give you a cogent explanation for you know why that happened. But you, you know, before you run the model, it's hard to hard to predict where these are going to go. And you know, you change one thing, and you know, four different things change. So it's a yeah, it's a fun it's a fun space to work in. So I want to dig in on a few of the conclusions, higher level conclusions out of the report. There's obviously a ton in there, and I think we can dispense with some of the things that are going to be true across every scenario and that everybody already knows. We're going to build a lot more wind and solar and lithium ion batteries, and we're going to electrify some amount of transportation. Like 
all that stuff is given, right? Um, but there's a million questions that come regardless. So let's talk about a few of them. The first one is um, the the long-term role for fossil fuels, right? So we spent a lot of time talking about the new things that we need to build, predominantly renewables, et cetera, electrification of sectors. Um, but one of the things that you find in most of these uh, scenarios that you're modeling is that there continues to be some role for fossil fuels. So what is it and why? Yeah. So I think it's an interesting finding that a net zero emissions you know, economy doesn't necessarily mean zero fossil fuels. That is one of the pathways that we modeled, a uh, zero fossil fuel, um, 100% renewable scenario. Uh, and it is also reasonably affordable, like cost is not the barrier for any of these scenarios. They all you know, require spending about the same amount of our GDP or our economic activity on energy as we have, as we do today, and as we have less than we have historically in the past. Um, so, you know, we, multi- we model multiple paths and cost is not the principal barrier for anyone. So we have a bunch of choices to make then about what type of path we want to take. And our report is agnostic on the answer to those choices, but what we want to do is lay out those different options. So in any case where we didn't constrain fossil fuels to zero, just, you know, as, a, as an input, um, we did see uh, continued use of oil and natural gas. Coal uh, is phased out of every f- pathway by 2030, basically over the next decade. We would, you know, virtually entirely eliminate coal use um, over the next decade, uh, and that's because it is such a carbon-intensive fuel, and we have available and, uh, and cheap substitutes for power generation, which is where most of the coal is consumed. Um, oil and gas are a little bit different because we primarily use petroleum products in liquid fuel. Um, and, uh, and gas in pipeline gas for both heating buildings and for industrial processes that need sort of medium temperature or low temperature heat. Um, and so those two, uh, uses are more challenging or at least more costly to, uh, substitute zero carbon fuels for. Uh, than in electricity, where we have cheap wind and solar and uh, potentially carbon capture and, and nuclear and you know geothermal and other options. Uh, so the best way to substitute for um, for either of those is to uh, is with a drop in replacement fuel, like something that just looks the same. Um, but those are challenging and costly pr- to produce. Um, and so uh, we do do some substitution and fuel switching in these scenarios. We, you know, one of the options is for industrial processes that need a uh, constant supply of heat to install a double boiler system. So one that runs on pipeline gas and one that runs on electric resistive heating. And when wind and solar power is abundant, you just have a big sponge that can absorb all of that cheap wind and solar and use it to instead of natural gas to run your industrial process. Uh, and then when the wind and sun stop, uh, you run back to your, you, you turn back on your gas boiler. So that was one way in which we see, you know, substitution for gas, but it's not full because, you know, the wind and sun are not constant and those industrial processes need to run all the time. So that displaces some of it. We see a big role for hydrogen. Um, produced from electrolysis and also from gasification of bioenergy crops, um, whether that's, you know, agricultural waste or, um, uh, you know, corn stover or purpose-built or purpose-grown perennial grasses like switchgrass or miscanthus. And you can can gasify that biomass uh, and turn it into hydrogen and CO2. And you can either take the CO2 and use it for something or you can sequester it, which gives you a negative emissions um, process. 
And so then we take the hydrogen and we displace some of that natural gas use, right? Where you can use, you can blend it into pipelines or you can blend it in power plants and you can use it in lieu of natural gas. And we have a negative emissions credit basically from sequestering CO2 that originally came from the atmosphere, was absorbed by plants and was captured in that biomass gasification process. And that offset allows us to continue to use some amount of fossil fuels in the most costly to decarbonize activities. And that turns out to be things like jet fuel uh, and heating in buildings in cold weather climates where heat pumps are less efficient and more costly to you know fully substitute for heating and in industrial processes that still need some amount of pipeline gas. So we, we tend to continue to use some gas and, and oil in those applications and, and some to some degree diesel fuel for some long haul you know, transport. Um, and then we, sub, we basically decarbonize as much as can be affordable. But I guess um, I want to make sure I understand that then, because you said at the outset, cost, even in the 100% renewables case, is not the barrier, right? So if it's not, so if the, the alternative in those remaining fossil fuel applications that you're describing, so say jet fuel, um, you know, you could use hydrogen. There's some world in which battery technology gets good enough that it all becomes battery power. And there, there are potential alternatives. Um, so if cost is not the barrier to those alternatives, what is? Yeah. So, uh, there's a bunch of trade-offs that we have to think about in the unconstrained cases. It is cheaper to, to continue to use the fossil fuels and, uh, uh, and use negative emissions, you know, from from biomass gasification, uh, and in some limited cases, like the E minus case, direct air capture, as we talked about before. Um, although it it only plays a role when biomass is used up, right? Because trees and crops are direct air capture, right? They're a cheaper way to do that. Um, can you? Sorry, just for anybody who doesn't know, can you like describe biomass gasification? Wh- yeah. What, what are you actually talking about, and like why is that such a powerful negative emissions tool? Yeah. So. Um, you know, basically crops absorb, you know, CO2 from the atmosphere and they fix it with hydrogen from water that they're absorbing and make hydrocarbons. You know, they make um, they make uh, cellulose and other, you know, glucose sugars and other, um, you know, products that contain or other compounds that contain um, contain carbon and hydrogen. And if you um, if you basically blow that up in a controlled environment where you get um, you get the sort of constituent parts out of it through a series of reactions, you end up with just hydrogen and um, and carbon monoxide, which then is turned into carbon dioxide by absorbing some more uh, carbon, uh, some more oxygen from steam. Uh, And you can take those two streams out and get a carbon neutral source of hydrogen um, which is can be supplement, you know, electrolysis from wind and solar, uh, and you get CO two that originally came from the atmosphere, and so then you can either use that CO two in a, in a synthetic fuel, which is carbon neutral, because you're, you know, when it goes back to the atmosphere, it just, you know, it's CO two that came out originally um, via plant growth, or you can sequester it underground, in which case you're doing direct air capture, you're taking CO two from the atmosphere running it through an industrial process, and then permanently storing it in geologic basins. And that reduces the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And so that could offset some direct emissions from fossil use. Why do you think it is that, um, you know, there is so much focus on hydrogen right now, and you find indeed a substantial role for hydrogen in a lot of these outcomes. So so that seems justified. However, um, the vast majority of the attention is being paid to electrolysis at this point, using electricity to split 
um, water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then that produces the hydrogen, as opposed to this alternative pathway that you're describing, the biomass gasification pathway. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's a, I mean, a couple of things. It's a less mature, you know, sector, right? We, we've been doing electrolysis, you know, places like um, like Sweden have been doing electrolysis since, you know, World War II era. Um, and, you know, we know how to produce electricity at scale. We know how to do wind and solar at scale. Uh, biomass gasification is a less mature technology. We've, you know, done pilots. We know how the engineering works, but to make it uh, reliable and cheap and scalable um, will require ongoing effort over the next decade. And so it's just a less mature technology in terms of its technological readiness uh, and the industries around it. Um, the you know the cheapest way to produce hydrogen today is from natural gas, particularly in North America, where we have low cost natural gas, is to to use steam methane reforming or autothermal reforming to split methane, which is CH four, into carbon dioxide and hydrogen, uh, and then sequester the CO two if you want to. Right now we we do that. All, almost all of the hydrogen in the U.S. today comes from methane reforming without carbon capture, so the CO two just goes into the atmosphere. Uh, you could uh, do it with carbon capture, in which case the, that could be a carbon neutral process or a very low carbon process. So in the near term, it looks like that's the most cost effective way to produce hydrogen. People call it blue hydrogen, um, gas with CCS. Uh, over time, we expect, and our modeling includes uh, electrolysis getting cheaper, such that wind and solar uh, and other, you know, low carbon electricity uh, feeding electrolyzers is the next cheapest way to produce electricity, and we sort of stop doing, adding any new autothermal reforming of gas. But in the longer run, you know, uh, we are going to build so much wind and solar in all these scenarios that it's going to it gets increasingly costly to add more. Um, you know, you've used up the best sites, you need more transmission, land use challenge, you know, and siting opposition are going to, you know. Be are presumably going to be greater as cumulative siting impacts grow. You know, more and more wind farms on the horizon, more and more parcels used for solar, um, and so the you know the biomass gasification is a third leg in the stool. You know, along with uh, electrolysis and and you know blue hydrogen to produce um, to produce zero carbon hydrogen, and it has it delivers something that neither of the other routes do, which is this negative emissions option. Um, and, you know, so you're getting hydrogen and you're getting basically permission to keep using jet fuel, which is very valuable or, you know, permission to keep using industrial process heat from natural gas. Right. And those so it gives you way more value than just the hydrogen itself in, an, in a net zero car, uh, emissions constraint. And that constraint doesn't get tight until the future. Right? You know, in the near term, you don't need to worry about that. But as you get closer to 2050 and you need to economize all of your use of carbon, the fact that the biomass gives you both hydrogen and carbon dioxide uh, makes it a more valuable way to produce um, hydrogen than the other two routes. So we've obviously gone through a couple of cycles historically of excitement around various bioenergy applications, right? Like we had the biofuels excitement a decade ago that was a big part of the sort of clean tech 1.0 boom and bust. Um, biomass as a source of power has, it plays a role, but it's never really scaled. Like, do you think that there's something, is there something fundamentally challenging about using crops for energy that is going to make this pathway difficult? Yeah, it's a great question. And honestly, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the findings of the study, I think that points to, 
you know, the importance of doing these kinds of studies because it says, look, we have a decade to figure out how to do this at scale. And if we don't do that in the next decade, then one of the critical building blocks of a net zero economy won't materialize. So, you know, this is a challenge. It's not something that would be easy. But a decade ago, solar cost 10 times as much as it did today and wind costs, you know, three times as much as it did today. And so, you know, with focused effort, we can, you know, dramatically change the technological landscape. And I think um, in some ways that's, you know, that's sort of the challenge right now for at least for the biomass gasification routes and other, you know, biomass pyrolysis to produce feedstocks for to displace petrochemical feedstocks from petroleum. Um, that's the other main use of biomass in our cases. Um, in terms of growing feedstocks, I mean, the reason it's so tantalizing is that, you know, the United States in particular has an enormous, you know, land and and landmass and an enormous agricultural productivity. Uh, and so using that, you know, our our forests and our, our, um, and our croplands to, you know, to help us produce sustainable energy is, a, you know, it's a, it's an attractive option for a country like the United States. Uh, we do, you know, use 40% of our corn uh, today for ethanol production. Which is That's, an absolutely you know, insane number. That's a crazy number. It's a huge number. Yeah. It, and it's, you know, prime farmland, right, across the Midwest and, and elsewhere. And so actually what we did in the study was in all of the cases, except for our high biomass case where we relaxed this constraint, we said, what if you only use that land, the same land that we're already using, or at least the equivalent amount of land as we're already using for corn ethanol? Um, but instead of just using the corn kernels to produce a fairly inefficiently, you know, converted um, liquid fuel substitute that we don't need once we transport, you know, once we electrify all light duty vehicles, right? We don't have much demand for ethanol anymore. Um, what if we use that for a different process that was much more efficient at using both the land and the full biomass crop? And so there are sort of two options. The one we kind of primarily considered in the modeling was let's convert over time all the lands that use that we use to grow corn to grow perennial grasses like switchgrass or miscanthus that are you know high yield. Um, they don't require as much fertilizer uh, and and other um, inputs because they're perennials, so they grow back every year. Um, they sequester more CO two in the soil structure, you know, in the root structure than you do from from annual crops like corn. Um, and, and so they could be a more productive way to use that same amount of land for bioenergy production. And then you can't ferment it the same way you do with starches, but you can put it in a biomass gasification process and, and get hydrogen and CO2 out of the process. Or you can you know, use pyrolysis to make um, basically oils that are substitutes for petrochemicals. Okay. So just to repeat this back to make sure that I understand it and everybody else does. So you take, so we have 40% of our farmland or sorry, our corn land currently that is being used to produce ethanol. You basically replace that with different crop. You're not growing corn anymore. You're growing switchgrass or miscanthus or something like that. You take that stuff and you do one of a couple different things with it, but let's say predominantly gasification. So you take those crops, you run them through a process, you turn them into hydrogen and CO2. You then either, you take the CO2 and you either sequester it, negative emissions, or you use it for something valuable, carbon to value. So turn it into chemicals, turn it into black carbon, turn it into whatever. Um, and you take the hydrogen and then you use that to abate the hard to, hard to electrify sectors. So maybe jet fuels, maybe high temperature heat, industrial processes, maybe some building space heating. It's basically the idea. Yep. 
direct reduction of iron so we can make steel without blast furnaces that use coking coal. Yeah. So hydrogen is a key piece of all those. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. And, you know, while we modeled it as primarily using um, this conversion of corn land to primary to, to perennial energy uh, grasses, which would probably be the most sustainable option in the long term, we actually recently recalculated and said, well, what if you just used the whole corn crop? Right. You used all the what's called the stover, the, you know, the, the, the stocks um, uh, from the corn and not just the corn kernel itself. Um, so you use the cob and you use the, st- the, the stocks. You, you, and if you left 25 percent of that stover on the land to re- replenish the soil, which is typical practice, or you, you sort of um, mulch that into the soil uh, and you use 75 percent of the biomass, you, you would actually get about the same amount of biomass as we modeled. So you could you so in other words you could just keep doing forty percent of our land to grow corn, and instead of making ethanol out of it, run it all through a biomass gasifier, leave twenty five percent of it on the land for you know soil restoration, and get about the same biomass yield as we estimated as needed in the the main scenarios. So you don't need to switch to switchgrass or miscanthus. No, so it could be some combination basically of switching over to perennial energy crops or just continuing to do what American farmers are great at, which is grow lots of corn. Um, you know, so that, that to me makes, you know, when, when we figured that out, when we kind of ran the numbers on that and figured out that that was also a viable option that give us, gives us about the same order of magnitude of, of, um, feedstock that to me built my confidence that this is a viable route because the, I think the biggest challenge, I mean, there's some technical challenges and, you know, cost reductions needed around gasification, but the, I think the biggest challenge is just how do you transition this entire you know, all these hectares and acres of, of um, you know, of crops and, far, you know, millions of farms over to something else. And so if you don't have to do that, that's good news, right? So it means we can do some combination of of switchgrass and miscanthus and, and corn, and they all are high yield crops, and we can run them through uh, gasification processes to get the biomass we need. I, I should also add, we do model uh, waste biomass from existing agricultural processes. So the rest of the 60% of the corn uh, and soy and, you know, and other agricultural lands uh, and um, some amount of uh, waste biomass from managed agric- uh, managed forestry lands. So thinning of um, forests, which, you know, as you know, in the West is going to become a big, important, you know, project to, to manage fire risk um, in Western forests as well. So, so that, the trimmings from that process, the thinnings from you know forest um, uh, fire control efforts can could be used in gasifiers as well. A quick pause in the show to talk about an educational opportunity that we think you're really going to love. The interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Through this online program, Yale is educating with impact, training working professionals to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. It's estimated that approximately a trillion dollars per year will need to be dedicated to deploying clean energy to stay below a two degree Celsius temperature increase. The challenges and the opportunities for deployment are both immense and immediate. Tackling them requires a cross-sectoral approach and an interdisciplinary lens. It requires an informed workforce and a powerful knowledge network. And it requires sharp skills and a willingness to learn. This is precisely why Yale University drew on its deep expertise to offer a unique program marrying academic rigor with practical skills for working professionals in all parts of the clean energy industry. The program builds a common language across disciplines to better understand the interplay of the policy, financial, technical, and socioeconomic factors that support the growth of clean energy. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. 
obviously when it comes to things like our, you know, the corn crop in the United States of America, like there's a, from a practical standpoint, there's a political reality here, which is, um, the, those, uh, that industry has a lot of political sway. It has led to part of the reason we use 40% of our corn crop for ethanol production is, you know, it's a political reason. It's not a technical or an economic reason, right? Yeah, two words, Iowa caucuses. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> Iowa caucuses. So how does this transition fit into that political reality? Like, can you get the industry on board? Yeah, I hope so. I think what our analysis points to is that there's an enormous opportunity for investment in agricultural communities across and rural communities across the country. What we estimate is on the order of $1.4 trillion in capital investment in the bioconversion facilities that we would need to produce all of the hydrogen and CO2 that we were talking about. And because transporting you know, solid biomass is expensive, right? It's not a very dense products, so you, you don't want to ship it very far, those bioconversion facilities would be located all across the agricultural lands that, and forestry lands that produce the biomass. So these would be in rural communities employing, you know, employing people in, in, in those conversion plants the same way that ethanol you know, facilities do today. Uh, and the total yield um, and the revenues for farmers that are producing crops for biomass would be much larger than the sales of corn ethanol today. So we estimate that by 2050, it'd be on the order of $116 billion in annual revenues for biomass farmers um, versus about $19 billion in sales for, of corn for ethanol today. So almost 10x revenue you know, growth in terms of um, production. That's because instead of just using the corn kernels, you're using the whole you know, the whole uh, crop that you're growing on your land. And so you can you know, get, and you're using it for a high value product. And so you can get more, um, more revenue out of that. So it's both capital investment in, you know, bioconversion facilities in, in rural communities. And it means potentially a, a substantial increase in revenues for farmers of bioenergy crops. One of the things I find interesting about this as I'm thinking about it now is that the, um, the geography of this within the United States, you know, the places that the, the regions of the country where we produce a lot of corn today, and thus in this future scenario you're describing would produce a lot of hydrogen and CO2. We should talk about both of those. Um, they also tend to be regions where we have really cheap, abundant wind power. And so also probably pretty close to where we would want to site a lot of our big electrolyzers also to produce hydrogen. So the scenario you're describing kind of creates the Midwest as like this you know, Abu Dhabi of hydrogen production. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 electricity. Uh, you know, we we did state level analysis and sector by sector analysis of employment shifts uh, in in our E plus scenario at least, and then at the national scale uh, for each of our scenarios. Uh, and we found that you know certain states like Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, um, Indiana. I mean, they become energy powerhouses. They're producing huge amounts of wind, some amount of solar. They've got electrolysis facilities. They've got bioenergy, you know, conversion facilities. They've got biomass production. Uh, they've got it all. Um, and so, yeah, parts of the country really, um, uh, really do win tremendously from these kinds of transitions. Almost all states see at least um, uh, s some amount of net growth in employment and energy supply-related activities. So the growth in particularly wind, solar, and transmission-related jobs, which are the biggest three sectors for employment, uh, offset the gradual decline in employment in uh, oil and gas, uh, which occurs over the, the time period uh, that we're looking at, uh, with the exception of a couple of states um, that are heavily 
uh, where employment is heavily associated with upstream fossil energy production, uh, which is in the near term, West Virginia, in its coal mining regions, um, and then longer term, Louisiana, which produces a large amount of oil and gas, uh, would see net declines over single decades um, in our kind of least cost strategy. It's important to say, though, that that's just how the chips fall if all you care about is least cost decarbonization. That's clearly not what this country cares about, right? Like, you don't only, nobody cares about like the cost optimal solution for the United States as a whole, right? We all care about what it means <laughs> for our backyard. Oh, man. It's, yeah, as an optimizer. It's funny to hear you say that as like my, my guru of, yeah, cost optimization of decarbonization. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I see cost as a, um, as a sufficient condition, but not really as the objective, right? Like it can't cost too much or we're not going to do this. But what will ultimately build the political consensus that we need to sustain a three-decade transformation of our economy at the scale and complexity that we look at in the Net Zero America study is a distribution of benefits and costs, you know, and a management of those costs across the economy that gets enough of this country bought in. And so, you know, we looked initially at what would the least cost strategy look like in terms of its employment, just to start from there, because that, you know, that's what the market will do if we don't use policy to change things, right? It'll do something like that because markets are cost optimizing. Um, but just because West Virginia loses in that scenario in, in the you know, 2020s doesn't mean it has to, right? We can reconfigure a lot of this deployment, both the manufacturing of components and where the wind and solar and transmission and bio you know, energy plants go uh, to try to mitigate some of those losses. And we can invest in other sectors and no reason why, you know, West Virginia has to be an energy producing sector forever, right? Or an energy producing state forever. It can, you know, there can be other, um, opportunities for growth. So policy needs to address those kinds of challenges and we can help spotlight, you know, which states are clear winners and maybe actually can give up a little to other states if, you know, and, and still come out ahead, uh, and which states we really need to focus on understanding, um, and mitigating the transitional impacts that, that occur in those states. Yeah. There's also the reality that, you know, the U S is a confederacy of 50 states and states set their own policies. And, you know, we've seen this play out with solar and wind, right? Like the states where we produce the most solar and wind are not inherently the sunniest or the windiest. They're the ones with RPS standards, historical RPS standards. I mean, that's starting to change now that like you don't need policy quite as much to spur wind and solar development, but it's easy to imagine, you know, Iowa in five years, taking the lead on some state level policy that creates a big incentive for biomass gasification, for example. Um, the other thing that I think is an interesting outcome of this as we're thinking about this geographically. Um, so, you know, your, the scenarios you're describing end up with a ton of new production of hydrogen and a ton of new sequestered CO2, whether through carbon capture or through this biomass gasification process or something else. Um, both of those things, then you got to do something with them. In the case of CO2, you can sequester it in the ground or somewhere. Um, you can also use it for something. In the case of hydrogen, you're always going to use it for something. Um, there's a ton of infrastructure that has to be put in place in both of those cases. We're talking about pipelines. We're talking about storage. We're talking about, you know, a whole new, think of what we have now for natural gas, and perhaps we will use some of what we have now, now for natural gas, but that scale of thing for CO2 and for hydrogen, how do you think about that challenge? And again, back to the sort of practical reality of like getting that built out. 
Yeah. So one of the other key pillars in all of our scenarios, we sort of outlined six key pillars that show up in all of the, our pathways. And one of those is CO2 capture and either use or storage or some combination of the two. So even the 100% renewable scenario still uses a lot of CO2 because we need to make synthetic fuel to fully displace fossil fuels. So that synthetic fuel means basically producing a hydrocarbon. Um, so, you know, a petroleum, a diesel substitute or a jet su- fuel substitute from CO2 and hydrogen that come from carbon neutral sources. And the only way you can do that is to capture CO2 either from crops, from bioenergy or from the atmosphere, right? Those are the only way, the only ways you can have carbon neutral CO2 is if it came from the atmosphere to start with. And, you know, that means direct air capture through chemical or mechanical means, or it means growing you know, trees and, and crops and converting that CO2 into, into uh, fuel. And so CO2 capture becomes critical in all the scenarios. Uh, it, we use it for synthetic fuel production in the 100% renewables case. In the other cases, we do a lot of CO2 sequestration on the order of a billion tons of CO2 per year uh, by 2050, more in some cases, a little bit less in, in others. Uh, and that would require... Uh, a, a new nationwide transportation infrastructure for CO2, a, a pipeline system, um, not on the scale of our natural gas pipeline network, um, you know, similar geographic scope, but not as many miles of pipeline. But we need need something on the order of um, 100,000 kilometers of pipelines uh, by 2050. Uh, and uh, and it would it, what we out, outline is basically a national trunk line network or sort of CO2 superhighway that would put... All, particularly all the biomass sites, which are distributed across the country where the, the crops are because it's costly to move, move crops over long distances, uh, and put all those sites plus you know, industrial sites like cement facilities, which is another key use of carbon capture, which there's really no other way around, uh, and, and in some cases, natural gas power plants with CCS, um, and basically put all those point sources within a couple hundred miles of a trunk line. So that when a facility comes online, it knows that with a reasonable, you know, cost and risk, it can connect a spur line to an existing trunk line system, right? So you got to get your road to the super, to the, you know, to the interstate highway, basically. Uh, and then the trunk line network will take it from there and it'll take it to uh, one of several CO2 storage basins uh, across the country. Uh, and that network, we really have to start building that or at least planning that network today. Uh, if we want to see it at the scale that is consistent with these, you know, these affordable transition paths to net zero, uh, it'll take us years to permit and build it. Um, and if you don't start the planning for that process now, uh, it won't be at the scale we need in the 2030s and 2040s. Uh, and so that's a pretty critical need. Another one of those ways in which we start looking ahead at 2050 and planning backwards and seeing that we're already kind of behind the eight ball on that one. And it's time to get moving. This is one of those chicken or egg problems that I see a lot actually in my day job, you know, when we're at EIP, we're looking at startups, right? Um, and there's lots of startups that are trying to turn CO2 into something valuable, um, as an example. And there's a bunch of other startups that are trying to capture CO2. And in some ways, there's this, like, they're, they're both the chicken and the egg. And then there's something, this, this metaphor is falling apart fast, but there's something in between the chicken and the egg too, which is like... <laughs> Yeah, there's exactly. an omelet. There. There's an omelet there. <laughs> they, um, the problem is, if you're trying to use CO2 to turn it into some product of value, you need a constant, steady stream of CO2. That's hard to get right now. If you're trying to capture carbon, you don't have an economic case to do so without there being an end market, 
for that carbon, then you need to make sure that there is demand. Demand's not going to be there without the supply. And neither of those two things can touch each other without a midstream of pipelines or potentially trucks, which are just going to be a more expensive version of the same thing. And so there's this this coordination problem with like, which at the moment in the United States is, I don't think being solved very well. Like you've got, you know, stuff happening at very, very small scale as a result. And in the absence of coordinated action, which I think has to be policy, unless you tell me there's a way to do it otherwise, um, or unless like one of the, a big pipeline company decides to just take a leap or something like that. um, It feels to me like it's just, we're going to be like, plotting ahead slowly on this and really like individual cases and individual regions with individual applications for a decade. Um, Because otherwise I don't see a good solution here. No, it's really well said. I mean, that's exactly the problem. It is a it's a three party coordination problem, right? You've got the sources, the sinks and the and the transport network in between. And without all three pieces, uh, it doesn't work, right? You can't do any of it. And so, again, just like, you know, we need to focus on the bioenergy pillar now so that in 10 years it's ready to scale the way wind and solar are today we need to focus on the co2 uh transport and storage pillar because with and capture pillar because with without focused effort it won't materialize and you know i focus on the pipelines a lot because it is fundamentally a policy question um you know we've never had a national transportation network of any kind without policy right we wouldn't have built the railroads without um, you know, land grants to to the railroad companies to to lay their lines across the country, um, and a bunch of military you know funding to to support it too. We wouldn't have ever got this you know the interstate highway system without uh, federal funding and uh, and and you know and, and prioritization. Um, you know, you wouldn't have trans have uh, electricity transmission networks without franchise monopolies and regulated rate of return. Right, you know, so one way or the other, we are either going to build this as a uh, a public infrastructure like sewers, or the you know, or the highways, or we're going to build it as a franchise monopoly like toll roads or transmission lines, or we're just going to subsidize it so much that the private sector can take the risk, you know, that remains after we subsidize it, right? And otherwise, it's just not going to happen. And and so that requires, I think, you know, we have to answer that question, right? We, you know, we drew some lines on a map in this study, right? Based on what we think is the, you know, best information we have, but like, that's what literally the Biden administration should probably be doing starting next month is starting a study to figure out how we're going to tackle this problem of building a new national CO2 transportation network. What regulatory or policy model or, or an ownership model are we going to use? Where should we, you know, build these corridors so that we have the most potential sources and sinks within a couple hundred miles with some uncertainty about where those will be in the future, right? This is, you know, important questions to answer. And that's only going to happen at a coordinated national scale. Otherwise, what you end up with is, you know, some regional lines, like we do have CO2 pipelines in the country today for enhanced oil recovery, um, but they only cover, you know, a few hundred miles and and they don't constitute a national transportation right. infrastructure. The other possibility, which is not mutually exclusive from any of the ones you described and certainly would, I mean, probably would only happen if with, with policy support, I think, is um is from the private sector, you know, you avoid the three-party problem if there's only one party. This is the Tesla strategy, right? Like you have a vertically integrated strategy where some company comes along and says, you know what, I've found the killer end market for CO2, or I've found the killer end market for hydrogen. I'm going to vertically integrate back upstream. I will, you know, produce it or capture it depending on the the case. And then I will transport it and I will sell it. Um, and I'll do all of it myself. And, you know, we, we don't see a lot of that yet. I think it's because it's early days in well, both of these markets, but yeah, but you see it in the oil and gas sector, right? I mean, that's right. that's exactly the business model of an oil major. Right. 
right? Right. Integrated up, up, you know, upstream, midstream, downstream. And so I could see that, you know, either a new company, a, you know, a bioenergy CCS major or, or the oil companies themselves pivoting into that space. Right. And, and, you know, one or more of them trying to tackle that opportunity. You know, again, it won't happen without policy because, you know, there isn't enough market demand for hydrogen or CO2 sequestration without an overall commitment to decarbonization. Uh, but assuming that's in place. Then, um, then I think you're right. That is another solution: is you could have vertical integration. Uh, although I think it would be a, it'd still be a more costly solution, given that there are network effects here. Um, so right. Same reason we have, you know, for transportation, you don't want to have every individual company laying its own transmission lines. It probably is cheaper here. No, and the same reason it's not efficient for Tesla to have its own supercharger network that is a closed yeah. ecosystem. They do, and it. yet that's true. You know, yeah, they do it. Um. All right. So last question, I guess you've alluded to this. Um. But it's not intuitive, and so it's worth digging into a little bit, which is around the cost of doing all this stuff. Um, as you've said, the cost is not the principal barrier to any of these pathways. I think traditionally we think that economy-wide decarbonization, reaching net zero by 2050, you know, as excited as we are about how cheap wind and solar have become, doing all of that stuff is going to come at a significant cost. What is it that you actually find about the cost, and who bears it? Yeah, so this is, I think, one of the surprising things, and uh, you know, the uh, important things about doing this study in 2020 and not in 2010 is that we've fundamentally changed the cost of decarbonization by making clean energy cheap. Right? We made solar and wind and lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles and LEDs and you know, and other technologies much cheaper than they were a decade ago, uh, and that has opened up an affordable path to net zero that didn't exist a decade ago. Um, and so, you know, on the high level, what we find is that there is, of course, incremental cost to decarbonizing over not decarbonizing, right? If you just look at the direct cost of expenditures on energy and ignore the tremendous, you know, public health impacts and climate impacts of our business as usual, you know, fossil fuel use. Uh, so if you just look at direct expenditures on energy, those do grow over the next decade by about 3% in net present value terms. So like over the decade, we spend American businesses and households would spend about 3% more in, in you know, in, in terms of dollars spent on uh, energy services than they do uh, today and over the long term, it would be more like twenty percent more. Although there's, I think, much more uncertainty about what twenty fifty costs, right? You know, and, and with further cost reductions, that could come down. Now, that cost estimate is assuming no difference in oil prices under a scenario in which we're decarbonizing, or oil and gas prices uh, under a scenario in which we're decarbonizing versus one in which we're just you know doing business as usual. And that's you know that's a modeling limitation. We just don't have a you know global oil and gas equilibrium model to sort of figure out what happens if the U.S. starts dramatically reducing its oil and gas consumption. So we modeled low oil and gas prices in all scenarios, including the reference case to create an apples to apples comparison. But of course, it makes total sense that in a scenario in which we're significantly reducing oil and gas use, you know, by as much as 65 to 100 percent by 2050, uh, that prices are a lot lower in that world than they are in the world where we just keep doing what we're doing today. And our exposure to oil price volatility on a global, you know, commodities basis is much lower as well. So, you know, that three percent cost could easily be a three percent benefit if oil prices are higher, right? And that that's in a you know a scenario where we don't don't take this path to net zero. So the cost is really pretty modest, and you know, it's I think that's important to internalize because it doesn't require a World War II style mobilization of you know twenty to thirty percent of our economic activity or our workforce to build a net zero economy by twenty fifty. 
it might if you wanted to do it in the next six years or something. But it, you know, if you want to do it by 2050, you know, we just need to take the money we're already going to sp- spend, the trillions of dollars we're going to spend on vehicles and on homes and on uh, and on electricity and fuels, and invest it in the right kinds of things in the low carbon. Uh, alternatives. And if we do that, particularly if you do that at the time when we replace durable assets like our cars and our heaters and you know our heating systems uh, and our industrial facilities, and just make sure that when they swap over, you swap over for a low carbon, you know, net zero consistent investment, uh, then the incremental costs are pretty modest. Um, and as a share of GDP, we're talking about spending less than we have historically. So clearly it's not going to bankrupt the US economy either, right? We've, you know, we've been chugging along spending, you know, four to ten percent of our GDP on energy services, and and we're talking about spending three to four percent or so uh over all of these paths. So it's it's very consistent with a wealthy, prosperous American economy as well. All right. So five years ago we had you on to talk about net zero power. Now we're having you on to talk about net zero economy in the United States. I think in five years from now, we will have you on to talk about net zero world. And then in 10 years, net zero galaxy, presumably. At, yeah, maybe yeah. Mars. We'll, we'll do Mars Well, next. yeah, I yeah. mean, Elon's going to take us there. Then we got to decarbonize it. Um, all right. Well, thank you for uh, for taking the time. Um, I'm going to keep, this is like a 360 page report or something like that. So I'm going to you know, it's my bedtime reading and I'm going to keep coming back to it. So we might, uh, might have more to talk about soon. Uh, all right, Jesse, thanks so much. Thanks, Shale. It's been a pleasure. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. And now for some bonus content. We're closing out the show with a segment on the future of solar power plants brought to you by our supporter, NextTracker. In this segment, how do you design the solar power plant of the future when the future is so uncertain? Dan Sugar, the CEO of NextTracker, has been building solar power plants since the 1990s, and a large number of those projects are still up and running. But he's seeing a growing threat to solar assets, extreme weather. I'm going to name some extreme weather events, and you tell me if you have dealt with any of these events in your career. Hurricanes. We've experienced hundreds of hurricane uh, interactions with next tracker systems. Extreme winds. It's funny, every time, you know, there's uh, the 100-year storm or 500-year storm, it seems like every time you build a project, you're going to have that 100 or 500-year storm within the next, you know, year or two after you complete the project. Hail. The prevalence of hail has skyrocketed with a warmer climate. And so we're seeing a lot, a lot of hail, um, in particular in the mid, the middle of the United States through the Southeast. Wildfires. Four million acres have burned in California this year and a couple million more acres um, in Oregon, Idaho, and, and you know, through the Western region. So uh, fires are, are a very serious um, and growing threat. Volcanoes. Yeah, my first experience with a volcano was in 1990, impacting solar was 1992 when Mount Pinatubo went off in uh, the Philippines. We saw uh, solar production go down in the Mojave Desert by 7% uh, that year. And so we, we have seen a number of uh, volcanic events um, uh, with uh, volcanoes in uh, Iceland and other places which have impacted solar power production. You've seen it all. What else am I missing here? Floods. Tell me about the floods. 
Well, with the warmer climate, uh, we're seeing more extreme um, rain. We've actually seen some crazy uh, flooding happen on sites that weren't even in the flood zone. Dan has seen it all, and he's seen how much pain it can create for the owner of a solar power plant. That's why NextTracker's tracking systems are future-proof, built to withstand the worst possible conditions. So we know these events are becoming more prevalent, they're getting worse. What are you doing to design solar power plants to weather these extreme events and to make sure that the yields remain high through them? NextTracker has designed our plants to deal with extreme weather, starting with the electrical and mechanical equipment. In both our one-portrait and two-portrait design, the electromechanical equipment is either at your chest height or your head height. That way, when you have uh, extreme flooding, uh, which could happen by rain or rapidly melting snow or other phenomenon, the equipment is out of harm's way. It's also out of more out of harm's way with uh, dust and and vegetation management with livestock. Um, you know, other factors that you might not expect. You just want to be keep the equipment up off the ground. Other features give customers a heads up when bad weather is coming. A single button allows PV plant operators to quickly respond and shift panels into stow position to protect them from heavy snow or hail. When you design features like this to address extreme weather events, how does it work with between you and your customers? We're listening intently to customers. The hail stow feature in particular, we had a customer come in and, you know, uh, tell us about the experience they had where this that the set over $70 million loss of solar panels with hail on a, on a different system and ask us like, hey, what could we do? And so then we, we actually uh, responded to that, you know, quickly and uh, developed the hail stove feature that's part of NX Navigator, which has uh, also other uh, asset management features. So, you know, a lot of the aspects of our products, our services, you know, are folks on listening to pain points and listening to opportunities to provide value to customers. It all comes back to NextTracker's built-to-last philosophy, creating tracker systems designed to outlast the 500-year storm. We take pride in these systems. I talk to people at Midtown, I'm like, hey, how's, you know, the Bavaria Solar One project doing that we built in 2004, which was the world's first 10 megawatt project in solar. You know, now we're doing that before breakfast every day at NextTracker, 10 megawatts. So, um, you know, but I'm still like, hey, that's, that system's still overperforming. That feels great, right? So we want to um, have a, a very high customer satisfaction and repeat business. Again, that's Dan Sugar, the CEO of NextTracker. If you want to hear more insights from him about where this technology is headed, go listen to our other previous episodes. You'll hear those conversations at the end. If you want to learn more about how NextTracker is advancing and protecting the connected power plants of the future with smart trackers across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. Thanks for listening.